shape-shifting druids, nine-month winters, and alcoholic cats, all today on The Booterverse. I'm sitting on a gold mine. Oh, episode eight. It's so good. Oh, let me tell you. Here's your host, Minor Buddha. He's going to tell you. I'm sitting with my gold here. Oh, I'm sitting on a gold mine. Oh, here he is. Oh, the one. Oh, the, the, the only B- Buddha. I didn't know time travel was possible, but apparently we have an 1849 miner running through the Booterverse. On episode 8, we have the inimitable Christopher Rowe. He's going to tell us what's in his dungeon. We have Marsha Houlihan filling in for Vasily Krapoff, and she's going to tell us what's life like in Mishawaka, Wisconsin. And as always, Judy Scheinbaum answers your questions. All today on episode 8 of the Booterverse. Today's episode of the Booterverse is brought to you by braces. Braces, when you want to give your boyfriend a sharp surprise. Buddha! And now for news in my orbit. In the former Confederacy, one Alabama resident might have said his wife was smoking hot, but I doubt he had quite this in mind. Billy Joel Creasy returned from visiting cousins in a neighboring county only to find his home had been burglarized, and his deceased wife Ashes apparently, well, smoked. His curio case full of NASCAR collectibles was untouched. However, the same could not be said of the plastic box of his spouse's remains. It had been smashed, and what was left of his dearly beloved was sprinkled about the master bedroom amongst a discarded lighter, some rolling papers, and scorch marks on the carpet. A distraught Creasy had hoped she had left as bad a taste in the criminal's mouth as she did in his, adding, bless her heart. In salami news... It may not be the horse's head, but when an alleged former mobster stabs a pimento loaf and leaves it on your kitchen counter, you might do well to be on guard. Authorities were called last week to the home of Bill Hansen of Salina, Kansas, after he reportedly stabbed lunch meat with a butcher knife in a passive-aggressive manner and left it for his girlfriend to find. Once she happened upon the punctured sandwich stuffer, Hansen entered the room and, according to the police report, began slicing it in what was considered a quote-unquote menacing way. Despite the distressing nature of the so-called crime and the alleged mob connections of the accused, officials declined to press charges because, of course, salami slicing is not illegal in Saline County. And furthermore, they doubted Hansen was even Italian. In other news, the scientific world has been rocked by claims that renowned physicist Stephen Hawking is actually a rather dirty man. The famously wheelchair-bound expert on black holes has apparently been a member of the Freedom Acres Swingers Club for years. Hawking, now 70, reportedly arrives with an entourage of nurses and has been spied having the club's naked dancers gyrate all over him. When the allegations surface, a representative for Hawking was quick to assert that he is merely collecting data for a new theory on celestial bodies. Rumors that he has been seen rolling into other strip clubs with Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye are currently unsubstantiated. Follicular news from the subcontinent. A group of Indian rogues have allegedly gone after a former soldier and lopped off his ear because he refused to shave his mustache. The brigands apparently targeted the man because his imposing facial hair was a challenge to their authority. Before he was pointedly parted from his ear with a straight razor, the victim claimed he was told, don't try to intimidate us with the peacock of your upper lip. The incident has inspired a regional mustache panic in which everyone from government officials to grandmothers have been pruning and plucking. There are reports of a small mustache refugee camp that has sprung up across the border in Pakistan. 
There is as yet no word on whether their request for follicular asylum will be granted, but GQ magazine's embedded reporters promise to cover the emerging story, so stay tuned. That's it for News in My Orbit. Buddha. Today's episode of the Buddhaverse is brought to you by Red Shirts. Red Shirts, because in the 23rd century, sometimes you're just expendable. Because our intrepid foreign correspondent Vasily Krapov is still down with a case of disco fever, we have another correspondent brought to you by the heart of America. Today we have Marsha Houlihan from Mishawakam, Wisconsin. Marsha, it's great to have you here in a segment we like to call Mornings with Marsha. Oh, here they are, Emery. It's good to see you, don't you know? It's so wonderful to have myself here with you. Oh, my goodness. Look at you. You're a handsome little devil there, don't you know? Listen, let me tell you, when I'm here in Wisconsin, we have a sand. You just cut that cheese there, my friend. I tell you, there's Swiss and Munster and all kinds of pepper jack and that one with the holy thingy doodles in it. And I tell you what, you are just a spitting image of my husband, Walt there. Thank you, Marsha. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, well, seriously, dear Emery, I don't even like to talk about it, but there was this one time when Walter was walking out there in the snow, and in Mishawaka, the snow, snow goes down nine months a year. Seriously, people are giving birth longer than the snowy season, if you know what I mean. Babies are born in the wintertime. It's kind of like that Game of Thrones book. I read the whole series. My goodness, that George R.R. R. Martin, he's a bit of a truth teller there, isn't he? He's got quite an imagination. I tell you what, I very much identify with that Daenerys Stormborn. And I tell you what, Walt was walking out there in the snow, uh, during one of the, the, the snowy seasons, winter is coming. That's all, you know, that's one of the, the sayings here in Mishawaka there, winter is coming, because it's a coming, nine months out of the year there. And he was walking down the street there, and he just slipped on a patch of ice and just sort of hit his little bummy dingle there. And I tell you what, he was out of commission for about five months. And I swear, if I didn't have to do all the grocery shopping, the cooking, and take the backhoe and, and, and get us out from under that snowdrift, I tell you what, what a guy there. But you know, Walt's always there with us. And thank goodness for the auto plant that we've got down that street there because they, they've got a great little pension program and, and they just put Walt right up there in the hospital for a couple weeks there and they, they put him in traction. And I tell you what, there, you know, when you put uh, your husband in traction, he can't say a lot. And let me tell you what, Walt's a bit of a gabber. And I don't know about you, but I like my husband to use less words than more, if you know what I mean, just so there's more time for me to talk to on channel. <laughs> I'm at a loss for words. Uh, how's the summer like in Mishawaka? Oh, the summer is great there, my friend. The ice just thawed right there, and we can do some regular fishing. I tell you what, we as a family go out there, a little troop of little penguins, right out there to the fishing hole and get ourselves some carp in the middle of the winter. But I'll tell you what, the ice is thawed, and we can put our little icicly picks there right in the right in the water, and it's great. The kids are in their Hawaiian shirts and their lays, and it's great. I tell you, we do barbecues, and it's a balmy 42 degrees, and I tell you what, there's no no better way to catch the rays than in a Mishawaka summer, I'll tell you that much right now. Did you say it was 42 degrees? Oh, yeah. Well, that's about as high as it gets where we're from in Wisconsin, because I'll tell you what, you know, it doesn't get very, it doesn't get very warm up here uh, for you uh, Southerners, you know. Oh, I tell you what there, everybody below that 49th parallel, yeah, you're just Southerners right there, don't you know? We fought a little battle against the Canadians back in 1842, and I tell you what, the, uh, 
the uh, history books don't recount it because uh, it was a bit more of a skirmish than a battle. But I tell you what, we Wisconsinians, we uh, we held our own there against the, uh, the, the battle-hungry Canadians. I tell you what, they were flagging their maple leaves and putting their sugary substances, they like to call maple syrup in our rivers. I tell you what, it's a battle for the ages, but we prevailed. And I want to tell you, Walt's ancestors, his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was actually part of that great battle. And I'll tell you what, we're so proud to be a part of that lineage. Actually, I still have the spear his grandfather chucked at the Canadian Brigadier General. Oh yeah, that's right. It's hanging up above the mantle. And I tell you what, we are just so proud of that right here in Mishawaka. So you come up and visit us anytime there, Emery. We'd love to have you. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome there. I'll tell you what, we'll put some flakjacks on the fire there and we'll griddle you up some eggs and we'll just have a morning with Marsha for you right there. This has been Mornings with Marsha with Marsha Houlihan. And we'll be right back after this. Buddha. Today's episode of the Buddhaverse is brought to you by giraffes. Giraffes, sticking their necks out since 7 million BC. Buddha. And now for a segment we like to call The Last Lung with Judy. Judy Scheinbaum, you're on the Buddhaverse. Hello, Emery. It's good to see you. Thank you so much for having me on. I think this is episode eight. I can hardly count that high, but I love it. Mwah. Thank you, Judy. And now Judy will answer your questions. Thank you. Okay, question number one. Jethro and Pugfatani PA writes, How do you get rid of unwanted groundhogs? Who do you think I am? The Maytag repairman? I don't know how to get rid of groundhogs. Am I a genius in rodent extermination? I am not. I'm a genius in other ways, if you must know. But not in this. Groundhogs? What do I know about groundhogs? The last time I saw a groundhog, I was in Central Park West and I almost died of rabies. I don't like the creatures. Any animal that lives under the ground, I don't trust. Moles, rats, worms, I don't like them. Animals that live in the ocean, I love. Why? I don't go to the ocean, they can't hurt me. Except one time, I had some bad calamari, and my god, my intestines felt like they were ripped up faster than a rotorooter through a toilet. But on the whole, I would say, what you need to do for the groundhogs is this. Now, even though I'm not an expert, I can read. And I was on the internet, kind of researching your question before, and this is what I found. For groundhog extermination, what you have to do is entice the groundhog out of the ground, and then you shoot it. Good luck. Now, Hester in Houston writes, Do you fast on holy days? Well, Hester, your name is from the Bible. What do you think, Holy Mary? I mean, we don't call it the Bible, but I think you know. If you live in Texas, you probably have about five under your bed and a couple on your bookshelves. Now, I know my holy writ from forwards to backwards, and let me tell you, my rabbi seems to think I've got a beautiful grasp on the holy book. And let me tell you, of course I fast on holy days. Listen, how does one keep one's girlish figure under this moo-moo? It's by observing the holidays. Listen, I haven't had shellfish since 72, and my God, was that a time. I remember I was with Robert Redford in Studio 64, and I may have had some shellfish. I did not know. He forced them upon me. I swear to God, it was like shellfish rape, and I need you to know that now, after that one experience, I follow all the dietary laws. Seriously, I don't even eat pigeons anymore. When I was a child, that was a family sport, shooting the pigeons and eating them after dinner. We would have a little pigeon fry out in the back Bronx. I loved it. 
But you know, I'm not advocating pigeon shooting. They're lovely creatures and God has created them. On the first day or second, whatever day he created the fowl of the fowl. We have a special word for that, but I don't remember what it is. You can ask somebody of import. But of course I fast. Listen, one time I made Eliza fast and she hated it. She still resents me to this day, and her figure is better than mine if you can believe it. She can still fit into her size 11 slacks, and I love her for it. She tends to like the elastic waist, and I don't know if that's a good thing or not, because I think it might shy some of the men away. But I think an elastic waist is great if you're pregnant, or if you have a full-figured body like I do. Elastic is a godsend, and I swear, if it wasn't in the scriptures, we wouldn't have it today. And I know it's in there somewhere. They stitched a couple garments together. Beautiful. And I think you can do that, right? And my last question today is from Chloris and Candidigadua. Candidigadua. Candidagua. Candidagua. Okay, there it was. Okay. Chloris, my God, where do you live? Candidagua? What is this? An Indian burial ground? What am I, the Great Serpent Mountain, Ohio? You are crazy. But let's go on. She asked a very important question. How do you like your eggs? Well, I'll tell you, with a side of Pall Malls. That's been it for The Last Lung with Judy. I love you all. Mwah! Buddha! Today's episode of the Buddhaverse is brought to you by Plastic Portable Flasks. Plastic Portable Flasks. Because nothing says, I'm a sippy cup for an alcoholic, more than a plastic portable flask. Buddha! I am sitting here with Christopher Rowe, science fiction and fantasy writer. It is a pleasure to have him here. Christopher, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. I'm glad to be here. Christopher, let's get one thing out of the way. Are you often mistaken for the British classicist Christopher Rowe? I have spent the last 10 years trying to slowly drive him off the front page of Google Hits for Christopher Rowe. He's still he's still not He's one. good. He's great. He's doing well. And I know that he's going to get a hit when he dies because he's an old man. Right, he is. Um, and he, uh, he knows a lot more about Socrates than I do. I would venture to say I know a lot more about Daring Do, about buckling the mm. swash Indeed. than he does. But uh, I think he's an emeritus. I think he's. Uh, I think he's no longer actively producing uh, all of those numerous tomes, weighty tomes, on uh, Socrates and Plato that he has been for many years. Um, no, to answer your question, no, I'm mm. never, never, never mistaken for him. Have you ever thought about taking his identity? You know, he's a member of the Order of the British Empire. You know, I mean, he may be, may not be a swashbuckler, but certainly he's been given a sword by Her Majesty. Well, she at least laid a sword upon his shoulder. Well. Um, That's what they'll tell you. I have not thought about taking his identity. I have, in fact, um, there are many, many Christopher Rose that I have have taken the identities of, consumed the power of, mm. uh, 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 mm. consumed the life essences of other Christopher's Rowe. But he is a powerful, powerful man. Can I say this about you? I know you are a man of letters because you said Christopher's row, <laughs> as one would say, attorney's general or surgeon's general. Well played, my friend. Thank you. Now, books. You're an author. Why are they good? Books are good because they convey the information therein directly to the mind via visual spectrum technology, through the optic nerve, directly into the brain. Have we lost something by going to electronic books? Nah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean let's, let's be real. They, um, the text is what's important. Um, the, the content is what's important. I am a, I'm old school. I like a physical book. 
Um, I do have... You like I, something hard in your hands, is what you're saying. I'm I'm gonna come back to that later. Okay. Uh, but I like um, I like I have a Nook. I've got a the one from Amazon, which is called a Kindle. Sure. Uh, yeah. And I've read on my laptop screen sometimes as well. But um, I like the physical objects of books. I like a beautiful book. Now, the reason that. Uh, I'm not that concerned about it is that capitalism has given us ugly mass-produced books. Uh, many trade paperbacks, for example, or what they, the this vastly inaccurate word perfect bound trade paperback with a glued binding and a paper cover is it's, it's just a little box of words and it is not a beautiful thing. It's not a I like books that are, have hand-sewn bindings and leather boards and that kind of thing and i think that what's going to happen with books is i think that we're going to go two directions i think that um i think that as long as electricity stays cheap and widely distributed which is by no means a certain thing sure uh, i think that digital texts will continue their rise but i think that at the same time bookstores will stay with us um as places to buy beautiful objects and I hope they do. I, there are sort of the book collectors out sure. there, absolutely, who value the book as an object. And there are those who consume the knowledge and like to consume it from a very specific way. You obviously like to have a physical copy of the book. Hardback, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. I, I appreciate a hardback book more than a paperback. Uh, well, I, I suppose it depending on the, 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 the what it, I'm reading. It, 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 it really does depend because I, I read a lot on my, uh, on my devices uh, but I will say that so far, at least, I tend to mainly read books that I know I will never read again on them. Absolutely. Um, no, and, and that's great. I mean, from an economical standpoint, mm -hmm. in conserving uh, resources and whatnot, I think that's a, a very lovely way to go about it. Absolutely. I think that's a great way. And I would encourage all of our listeners to do the same. If there's a book that you're going to read probably just once, do it electronically. Sure. You won't be worse for wear because of it. Now, your wife being an author, that's got to be sort of an interesting environment to craft books. How is it having two authors in the family? Well, right now it's even more interesting than you might think because we're working on a book together, a novel for readers um, like in the eight to twelve year old range together, um, the the issues that come up mainly come up because uh, she is a much harder worker than I am. I am lazier than she is, and she is much more disciplined than I am. I think I just said the same thing three times, three ways. But, but listen, that's I think the mark of a good author to say the same thing in several different ways yeah, and not have the audience know about it. Yeah. Absolutely. And since I get paid by the word. It behooves me. Indeed. It behooves. Oh, yes. It, I, it, I, it's I, quite natural. It behooves, it beho it behooves me yes. to, um, to extend, to ponder, to carry on and on. And sort on, of cogitate, if you will. To sort yeah. of... Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I think that sort of the spirit of Winston Churchill sort of embodied this lovely room, or perhaps an old, crusty admiral. Now... I'm going to pose to you an unsubstantiated rumor, but I want to throw it your way. Is it true that Gwenda has sold more books than you? And if so, is that a subject that sort of dog ears your pages? Yes and no. 
I have um, I have actually mainly concentrated on short fiction. I've sold about thirty short stories professionally. The only reason that I've sold any that I've published even one novel is that I was kind of dared and challenged into it by friends who were novelists, and I wound up writing a novel uh, called Sandstorm. And and that's your first first novel, first and only so far published. And what I've I, written one since another since. And what I love about that it was actually a fulfillment of your childhood dream yes. of writing a Dungeons and Dragons novel. Yes, it was. I had I had a bucket list that I wrote when I was around 14 years old, and I did not think that there was a finer thing for a man of letters to do in this world than to write a Dungeons & Dragons novel. Now, Wizards of the Coast... The company that owns Dungeons & Dragons. Is that sort of a club med for Harry Potter characters? No, it's a vastly powerful corporation run by dark, dark intelligences of Mm. mostly mostly human in appearance. Right, but probably Um, not in actuality. Right, I I would not venture to to guess uh, whether or not they are um, fully human in their souls. Mm, there's their very essence. Exactly. Mm. Who's to say who the powers that be are? It's Hasbro. It's Hasbro. 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 Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast. <laughs> well, Hasbro, we love you if you want to sponsor the podcast. No, I'm kidding. Um, now, Dungeons and Dragons, was that something that you gravitated toward as a as a young child, as an adult? Uh, my um my attraction to Dungeons and Dragons uh, occurred or happened or originated in uh, a novel and made-for-television movie called Mazes and Monsters, which was one of Tom Hanks's earliest acting roles. A woman named Rona Jaffe wrote a cautionary tale uh, in the form of a novel about these dreadful role-playing games and how they were endangering the youth of America. Uh, I believe it came out in around 1980. Uh, my mother got it through a book club and then it was on television as well and in the film in the telefilm and in the book uh, a young man goes mad and becomes obsessed and uh, there's I, I believe there's a brother that committed suicide etc cetera, etc cetera. probably would, after being on a podcast yeah I would perhaps imagine. perhaps and um and I thought that sounded so cool. Uh, so I um, talked my mom into getting me the basic Dungeons & Dragons set um, uh, in the red box and uh, and played around with it for a couple of years by myself, essentially, because I lived on a, a farm and didn't and the neighbor kids weren't into it. Sure, and the cows probably weren't, you know, very keen to play either. Well, they were interested, mm. but... Um, if you ever try to get a cow to roll a twenty-sided die, they they lack tactile dexterity. Mm. They, the, uh, the hoofs do get sort yeah. of in, in the way. Right. I would imagine. And then when I got to high school, I met a bunch of friends who were also into Dungeons and Dragons, and we started playing and played for years with those guys. And I played all through college, um, but in high school is when my freshman and sophomore years in high school were when I really got into it deepest that I ever have been in my life, probably. So do you? St- out of my curiosity, do you still play? Is this I do. Um, I play about once a month. Um, I'm in this kind of old guys who don't have enough time to play games gaming club. And uh, one Sunday a month, gather at my house, and we play role-playing games. Um, we play different ones. We play, we've played the latest Star Wars game from Fantasy Flight Games. Right now we're playing the Lord of the Rings game called The One Ring. And then we're going to start soon. We're going to play... 
the new edition of Dungeons and Dragons too. So we played this, that, and the other. But uh, but yeah, the, I, I still play Dungeons and Dragons. That's great. Uh, you know, it's wonderful that you can still be connected to that. Not only write novels for it, but still generate and gravitate toward that community and have that community yeah. surround you. Now about D and D, quick question: Who would win a level thirty-seven druid with shape shifting or a level forty cleric with healing spells? Thoughts? Well, system. Uh, you talking about fourth edition, fifth edition? Well, uh, let's do the fourth. How about that? Fourth edition. I'm going to go with the druid, although uh, the rules the rule sets only extended to level twenty, I think, in fourth edition. But I'm I'm going to go with a shape shifting druid uh, over a, a cleric with a healing domain, which I believe is the the what you said, um, for a couple of reasons. Please, okay, by all means. Uh, most obviously, a druid can turn into a honey badger, and as we all know, the honey badgers don't give it. Exactly. Uh, and a cleric with the healing domain is probably going to mainly probably be uh, concentrating on uh, non-martial arts. And when a non-martial artist encounters, say, a seven-foot-tall wolverine, uh, I'm going to go with the seven-foot-tall wolverine. I would do the same. Now, I must confess, I'm not a D&D scholar, player. I don't have the rule book. Um, but it has always fascinated me sure. that individuals could, as I said before, form this community around this game and truly build friendships out of it. And not unlike athletic sports or other activities, knitting, perhaps, that one could get involved in. So, You're I'm right. Not, uh, the... the one of the men, there are several guys, uh, mainly Dave Arneson and Gary Gajax, invented this game. And Gajax famously said something about, um, you know, at the end of the day, after you've played a game of Dungeons and Dragons, you have set around socializing with friends, and that's the most important thing. I don't remember the exact wording of the quote, but yeah, it's a. Um, I don't want to quote Judd Nelson's most famous character from uh, The Breakfast Club. It's a. Uh, John Bender, I believe, is the name of his character. He said it's a uh, so it's social, it's demented and sad, but social. Now, why do you say sad? I'm not. It's I am. I am. I'm going to back off of that right now. It's not sad, and neither is it demented. It's creative. Uh, it's um, it's collaborative. Sure. Uh, it is. Uh, it's you know at its best, at its very best, and I have lucked into lucked into this a few times in my life um it is a collaborative storytelling adventure it it, it is something where guys it's almost like uh improv you know where you're, you start riffing off of each other um you know the the best nights are the nights when you just are just cracking yourself up and cracking each other up so much that you know you're howling with laughter. I mean, I have I have friends that I've known for thirty years who, who tell story. We will, we can see each other and tell a story about something that happened in some game that we were playing in 1984 and just start dying and laughing. Conversely, uh, I've got friends who are still mad at me about things that happened in games in 1984. I don't I, <laughs> I, I, I did not know this for a fact, but my friend David, um, I was told secondhand was really, really mad that my dwarven fighter, Logan Shatterstone, would not give his wizard a spell book that he found in a in a in an undead lord's 
treasure trove. You bastard. It was, you know, I gotta say, it was probably kind of a dick move. It was a bit of a dick part. move, I would What think. is he gonna do with that spell book? I don't know. I, I don't think he could do much. Right. I'm not sure he could read, now I, that I think back of it. Well, right, and I mean, you want a spell book, but what are you gonna do with it? Exactly. You know, it's, I mean, it's a great point. You talk about the narrative nature of the game itself. Mm-hmm. Do you find that you've always had that sort of narrative component to your personality, that you're wanting to tell stories, and the game was perhaps an early way for you to do that, and then you actually went ahead and wrote short stories and then a novel. Absolutely, and then gaming was not even the earliest. Um, I actually wrote um, stories, and I wrote a, a four or five page novel that my um, late grandmother, blessed memory, uh, had for years in a in a uh, accounting book and in a blank accounts book for the family farm that I had gotten a hold of and wrote an alternate when I was around five years old I wrote a alternate history version of the Alamo in which Davy Crockett survives oh what Um, happened I don't know but it was illustrated with this awesome looking canoe well naturally (laughs) as one would have to have with Davy Crockett exactly I think you should really explore that in your next work I have this I'm so glad to have this opportunity right now I'm I'm glad I am more glad that I'm here tonight than I possibly thought I could have been because I am now realizing that I can now share with the world this wonderful, wonderful idea I have that my wife has, I won't say denigrated. Perhaps poo-pooed. Yeah, okay. All right. All right. All right, Boot Nurse fans. Listen up. They're here for you. Uh, Yeah? They're ready. Are they ready? Four words. They're ready. Daniel Boone versus Bigfoot. How could you not that write this? That is gold. This? Is that not gold? Come on. That it is would gold. be an amazing story. I think I'm 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 surprised. You know, when this when this goes live, Hollywood's going to be calling. Absolutely. They're going to be calling you. Yeah, exactly. Not me so much cuz, you know, look at this face. Speaking of my face, have you ever thought about growing a beard? <laughs> too soon Another, too I mean, if that's a too personal question, No, it's not. It's not a personal question, but it is again you um you have you have wandered into my marriage again. Uh, I am, you know, I, I am, tend to do that. I'm, I am pro. I am pro facial hair. I would like to, uh, like to grow a beard. I will. There are two things. Um, one is that my um, my beard has the texture and appearance of a wire bristle brush. Mm. And the second thing is that um, my beard grows in. A distinguished silvery white, ah. except for two stripes of red that extend down from my lips that look... Um, sort of fangish, if fang-ish, you will. Fangish, cartoonish, maybe, mm. clownish, perhaps. Oh. That might be a word that we mm. can use. I um, would never use that. Okay. But you may. I may. And I did. So, uh, yes, I would like to grow a beard. No, I'm not allowed to. If I may ask a personal and self-serving question, if you were to put into words... My beard. Mm-hmm. How might you describe it? How would I describe your beard? Yes. Uh, I would describe it as luxuriant. Mm. I would describe it as thick. Um, and I would enunciate it in exactly that way every Get time. Get those continents. I would consonants. never say. I would never say it's a thick beard. I would say it's a thick beard. Uh, I would say that it is. Um, it's remarkably um, homogenous in color. Is it, uh, do you dye that beard? I do not. I have been accused of just fermenting my beard, but I, I do not. Hmm. So, uh, I'm going to go with, uh, homogenous and thick. Mm. I, and luxurious. And, don't, don't forget luxurious, because yeah. I feel like homogenous and, and thick 
doesn't really, but with that luxurious, it really gives that sort of mahogany-esque type quality that I think my beard possesses. Well, and I was saying, and also below your cheeks and, and I noticed that your skin has the look and feel of genuine hand-tooled leather. Indeed it does. Uh, that is uh, ours in the sun, uh, Greek heritage, etc., uh, etc. Et mm. mm. Lots of olive oil. Mm-hmm. In the veins. Now, we were talking about Dungeons and Dragons. We were. And how there is a narrative quality about that. And we talked about Daniel Boone and Daniel Boone versus Bigfoot, which I highly, highly recommend as a as a story and or novel. I mean, they did uh, uh, Abraham I think, I Lincoln. Think, I think it's a whole suite of intellectual properties. I'm seeing video games. Sure. I'm seeing uh, manga. I think that the kids would love a manga. Sure they would. Where they read it backwards or Absolutely. whatever it is. I don't know how I that don't, works. Yeah, nobody. Uh, I could see, uh, you know, obviously a major major motion picture. If, uh, if they can do Abraham Lincoln Vampire Slayer, mm-hmm. they certainly could do Daniel Boone versus Bigfoot. Yes, they could. Why would they not? And Why wouldn't they? And because, I mean, there's so many things that... That you know, there are issues of ecology, there are issues of history, there are issues of, of uh, I mean, you know, isn't Bigfoot profoundly misunderstood? I would think so. And Daniel Boone famously was not the Indian fighter that many of his contemporaries were. And I, you know, I mean, he was imagine he was no Andy Jackson. No, good lord, no. But, um, but who was sort right. of napalming the Native Americans? If you will. Uh, Boone claimed to have only killed two Native Americans in his life. And one of them, people, some historians don't even believe that he did. They believe it might have been a story that he was telling. Are you calling Daniel Boone a liar, sir? Daniel Boone claimed to have fought a giant hairy man in Eastern Kentucky. Knowing Eastern Kentucky, as I'm sure you do, I'm sure there are, in fact, giant hairy men to be fought. But he, uh, when Daniel Boone came into Kentucky, he carried two books with him. Maybe one. But he, he at least carried with him a copy of Gulliver's Travels. He was really into Swift. That's interesting. And, I, as I am as well. And he, um, and the story, and there is a a creek in eastern Kentucky somewhere. What were the Brobdingnagians? What's what were the big ones? The oh. Lilliputians are the little ones, and then the big yes. ones were. And there's a, supposedly there's a creek somewhere in eastern Kentucky named by Daniel Boone that was called uh, was named after the the giants in in Gulliver's Travels. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That is. That, that, that is actually fascinating. I did not know that. Ah, we are learning so much today on this lovely, wonderful podcast. We are going to take a break, and we will be right back with Christopher Rowe. Bye. And we are back with Christopher Rowe. Christopher, always a pleasure. Thank you. Now, Christopher, we were talking about Dungeons and Dragons, and I want to talk about the perception that follows that game and the individuals that may or may not play. Now, with Dungeons and Dragons, it seems to me, and you may correct me if I'm wrong, that the general notion about it is that there are a bunch of nerds sitting around a table who couldn't do anything else on a Friday or Saturday night. Is this true? No. It can be true. I'm sure that there are people like that, maybe. Um, I, you know, I kind of reject the notion that that that's a that there's a qualitative judgment to be made there. I mean, there's an assumption in that question, not not in your not your assumption, I'm not saying your assumption, but there's an assumption that there is something better to do than sit around with your friends on a Friday night and play a game of fantasy make-believe and collaborative storytelling. You know, I 
I'm not sure there is. I mean, uh, there are other things to do that are just as good, sure. Uh, but I don't think that it's fair or accurate to describe um, going out to the club as quali- qualitatively better, indisputably better than playing Dungeons and Dragons with their friends. And as, as far especially as, if you get an STD. I mean, then it was just a horrible <laughs> night. Exactly. And then, and there are, you know, famously. I guess who is it? Vin Diesel uh, is the is a famous Dungeons and Dragons player, I think, and he's. I I don't think he fits many people's perceptions of, of a, you know, mothers living in your mother's basement geek. I mean, but and obviously he he may be an outlier. Maybe he's not. Maybe. It may be true that most. Studly Hollywood super celebrities are Dungeons and Dragons players. Sure. I'll go, I will go out there and say that that's a possibility. Well, he did do the Chronicles of Riddick series, mm-hmm. and so that might sort of presuppose certain proclivities he may have for the science fiction. Oh, sure. Well, I mean, come on. If you're talking about science fiction and fantasy, it's the biggest thing in the world. I mean, in terms of the media that is consumed in the West, science fiction, fantasy, superheroes, horror... I mean, the it, look at young adult fiction, which is the, the the economic engine of American publishing. I mean, the stories that people read are the stories by Cassandra Clare and Veronica Roth and uh, the Hunger Games books. I mean, which I was going to ask you, do you think we could set up sort of a Hunger Games series right here in the USA right now? I mean, could we pick children to battle to the death? Would it ever fly? I don't think that would fly, but I do think that there is a possibility uh, in the current political climate for a um, something similar. And I think what we would do is we yes. would invite wealthy people from around the world to descend in helicopters, Why perhaps would in paragliders. I would love the paraglider. Uh, paragliders, and and then we choose uh, through through lot, through volunteers, through whatever uh, to release into the wild. Uh, and these 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 vastly wealthy people, be they be they uh, corporate overlords, be they emirs, be they be they Chinese generals. The, these vastly powerful and wealthy people from around the world pay millions and millions of dollars, and we fund that money straight into education. And there's the ticket. There you go. Now, let's take a little bit of a detour here and talk about education. You're an author. You love words. You can't be an author, well, at least I don't believe you could be an author, and not have a certain love or at least admiration for words. The current educational climate, in your perspective, are we doing okay? Are we servicing our children well? Could we do better? And if so, what ways could we do better? That's a deep question. I come from um, a family of educators. Uh, my grandmother was a teacher. Both of my parents, although neither of them made careers of it, both of my parents study education. And on um, my in-laws were both principals, and my brother-in-law is still a principal, um, my wife's, all of her family are educators. Um, and despite all of that, I can't say I know that much about primary education. I do know that um, I bounced off higher ed when I was a younger person. And so I just graduated from the University of Kentucky in 2011 with my undergraduate degree. And just this year from Eastern Kentucky University's Bluegrass Writers Studio with my Master of Fine Arts degree. So I have been around a lot of undergraduates in the last few years. And my perception of education 
is that there are many passionate and committed people involved in it who are hampered by, I I don't want to say bureaucracy, I will say um, expectations that have little to do with education. People People do not acknowledge the fact that a liberal arts education as I'm a big fan of. As, I'm, as I, likewise, am a big fan of, is an education that prepares you to do many, many, many jobs. STEM, STEM education, science, technology, engineering, math, is, is a fine and good thing to concentrate on, but I don't think it should be concentrated on to the exclusion of the humanities, and I don't think it should be concentrated on in ways that funnel money, patents, and people into large corporations. I want to emphasize that I am profoundly pro-science. I am I'm a science fiction author, and, and I am profoundly pro-rational thinking. I'm profoundly pro-systematic uh, approaches to the world. Um, but, and most of the people that I know that are really gifted uh, astronomers and geneticists and epidemiologists are people who have a profound appreciation for the humanities. Now, speaking of science and science fiction, you have sort of lumped science fiction slash fantasy. You, you've used that term together. Mm-hmm. Can you differentiate for the listeners what might be the difference between science fiction and what the difference is with fantasy? Wow. Um, science fiction is famously hard to define. Um, John Clute, um, in his definition of science, there's a definition in the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, um, there's an entry called Definitions of Science Fiction, and I believe it runs to four pages. Wow. And a lot of people like to say that science fiction is something that could, that is feasible, that could happen, and that fantasy is something that could not. My favorite definition of science fiction came from the great writer and educator and humanitarian um, Damon Knight, who said that science fiction is what I'm pointing at when I say science fiction. Quick question. Star Trek, Star Wars, do you take a side? You don't have to say what it is. I'm just asking if you fall on one side of that divide. Star Trek and Star Wars, I appreciate both of them. I will say that Star Trek is a superior science fiction text. Uh, and Star Wars is a superior fantasy text. How about that? I think you crossed that divide quite nicely, my friend. You have been recognized uh, in in quite a few ways. You've had some critical acclaim. You've been up for a Hugo, a Nebula, World Fantasy, and a Theodore Sturgeon Awards for for your work. How does that feel? I mean, does it feel gratifying in some way to be recognized? Absolutely. I uh, there are a lot of different reasons to get up and do what you do in the morning, and a lot of people want to be famous. A lot of people want to make a lot of money. This sounds terrible, and I don't think it speaks well of me at all. But I am absolutely in it for critical appreciation, I guess. I really want my works to be read. I want to thrill people and I want to I want to write things that people remember. And um and the award nominations and the in the reviews and so on are just are just kind of the external validation that that kind of keeps me going and I don't know whether that's better than saying I want to make a lot of money. Uh but it but it is what it is. 
What I really love about what you just said is that I think it's honest. There's nothing wrong with wanting a claim, especially when you know that your message and your work, even if there's no message involved, that your work is out there, it's getting in the hands of people, and that people are enjoying it. I think that any artist would would want that. I I think so too. Um, I would I would I, I guess I should say I would think that too. But I do know. I mean, I have people who. People whom I love, they're dear friends of mine who um, who are a little more mercenary than that, frankly. Listen, I, there is no problem and, and, in and doing I'm that. Not, and I don't judge them at all. No. And, you know, that is going back to the age-old conflict between art and commerce and sure. all that, and we don't have to get into that. Uh, tonight. But speaking about conflict, in your home, I'm I'm sensing that there may be some conflict, and it's not between you and your wife. Does your dog puck and your cat Hemingway, <laughs> do they get along? No, absolutely not. Is Hemingway as salty and alcoholic as I would think that uh, he would be? Hemingway is, well, Hemingway has, I believe, 31 toes. <laughs> we we counted so legitimately. He's a, yes. He has a he has his he's got he's got great big paws. And he um he kinda does this he's got this dribble action that he can do on Puck's head. Puck's a, a little uh twenty pound mixed breed rescue dog of um a ferocious temperament and so, an enormous heart. So Hemingway was literally named after and for those of you who don't know, uh, the writer uh Hemingway had uh, the famous six toed cats right. down in Key West. And right. so that's where and the name Hemingway, like all of our cat like all of our pets, all of our pets are rescues. We named none of them. Um, they came, really? They all came. They all have literary names. Actually, that's not quite true. Puck. His name was Puff. P U F F. Oh my. Which we weren't down on, but he knew. He knew that name, so we went with Puck as something very close to Puff, and he. he so does he sort of envisage the magic dragon or the sprightly creature from Shakespeare's delightful Midsummer Night's Dream? He is more the dark fairy. He's the Puck. Um, the great thing about Shakespeare's fairies and Edmund Spencer's fairies and the fairy tradition in England in general is that you know they're not all necessarily we delightful creature, creatures at the bottom of the garden there's a there's a darkness to them as well and uh puck evinces the full range of that he is sometimes delightful and sometimes not mm, indeed well i am glad that you are surrounded by not only your lovely literary wife but with literary creatures <laughs> as well and as a man who enjoys D D and the fantastical world i could imagine no better sort of environment for you to write in it's great i live a great life i'd like to thank christopher rowe for being here today christopher if the listeners would like to get in contact with you what would the easiest way be uh, for them to contact you or to find your work uh, you can always check out um, my website, which is ChristopherRowe.TypePad.com. Uh, you're welcome to write me directly at C-V as in Victor, R-O-W-E, C-V-Rowe, at gmail.com. And just search Christopher Rowe on Google, and don't look for the classicist. Look for the science fiction writer, and you'll find my stories. And my friend, he is also on Twitter, and I found a little bit of a gem. Christopher has robot socks. I do. And uh, I'd like to know where you got those, because I would like a pair myself. Chez Target, my brother. No, you yes. went to the, the Target. That's crazy. Uh, Christopher Rowe, again, it has been so so much of a pleasure. I feel like we actually have traveled the whole expanse of Tolkien's world today in this interview, and I am so glad that you were here. I, too, feel like I've walked hundreds of miles. Well, everyone, thank you again for listening. This has been another episode 
of the Booterverse. Thank you all for joining us. Without your support and listenership, we would be nothing, and we are so glad you're on this journey with us. A special thanks to Christopher Rowe. It was a pleasure to have him. Thank you to Courtney and Sonny and our production team for making all of this possible, and to Quadrants for composing our theme song. And if you haven't had enough of me here on the podcast, you can join me on social media at The Booter. Not only are we on Facebook and Twitter, but for those of you so sartorially inclined, I'm also on Pinterest. Why on Pinterest? Well, you know. Men should be on Pinterest. I know interstellar travel is a bit difficult, but the Booterverse is only a click away. Mm